Good morning, everybody. Welcome to From the Deep End, start of a new week here on Digital Bible Study. Uh, good to be back here with you today as we um, uh, consider some things from God's Word over the next couple of hours, uh, as we do here each day on, on this particular program. Good way to start the morning. Good to have the opportunity to, um, uh, to be in the room here with you. And looking forward to uh, a good Bible discussion, as I just said. But um, uh, once again, really good week on tap here for um, uh, digital Bible study, normal schedule. As far as I know, everybody should be on uh, from the deep end, unless something comes up. We'll be running all four days uh, this week. I don't think we have any schedule interruptions going to mess with us uh, this particular time. Um, probably the highlight of the week is going to be what is going to happen during the uh, nighttime uh, broadcast. We're going to be doing Connect like we normally do at 7 o'clock uh, Eastern Time, uh, all four nights that it runs this week, which is again Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday and Friday. Uh, those will be going on all four nights, once one more time. Um, but in the 8 o'clock hour, and then again in the 9 o'clock hour, we are going to be working again with Brother Marlon Ratana, um, and uh, he is going to be conducting a, a Spanish language um uh, meeting for us uh, all four nights of those as well. So we're going to have eight hours of Spanish language um, material. Uh, the uh, advertisement, if you want to help promote that work, uh, is on our our locals page at digitalbiblestudy.locals.com. Uh, it is also um, it's on our Patreon page if you happen to be one who's over there. Um, and then, of course, it's in our uh, Facebook timeline. Uh, it is It is buried a little bit lower and because it's, it was several days ago that I posted it, uh, but it is there available if you want to um, uh, uh, scroll down there and find it. So if you could uh, help promote that, uh, mention it particularly if you know any uh, Spanish-speaking individuals, uh, we would love to have uh, that uh, promoted. It was uh, really well received, or his uh, his Friday class, which he just started this past week, was I thought really well well received. Um, um, on its initial episode and uh, look, just looking forward to that whole thing. So if you could pass that on to people, we would uh, appreciate your help in getting uh, getting the word out about that Spanish language work that is going to be going on. So for today on From the Deep End, we're going to be doing what we always do. We're going to be sitting around talking about some of your Bible questions and trying to um, uh, help you out on some of those things. And whatever's on your mind is fair game. Uh, anything halfway related to the Bible. It could be a textual question, some Bible topic maybe you're interested in, um, or if you have some some concern about, I don't know, something in your life, something in society that you'd like to see if there's anything the Bible has to say about it, any of those kind of things. Just uh, um, whatever happens to be on your mind is fair game, so go ahead and put that question in there, and I will be uh, trying to get to my... Um, Point or my uh, my view on it, uh, on whatever your particular question might be, here in just a couple minutes. And of course, as always, any question about Alabama football is always on the table, and it might even get bumped to the top of the list. Uh, so if you've got a question about Alabama football, season's getting closer. Uh, let me know. Uh, except for uh, the other Jonathan, because he's a Georgia fan and he's not he's not he's forbidden from asking any football questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, that's where we are. So, uh, second hour of the program, we will, uh, resume our study on, um, uh, first Peter. Uh, we missed that this last Thursday. Uh, sorry. I had a couple doctor's appointment, had to go get some pictures taken, that kind of stuff. Um, and so that 
pulled me away from the second hour of the program Thursday. Um, so we're here today, though, so we'll pick up uh, in the opening verses of First Peter. We're just starting that study. I think we're uh, be our fourth lesson in it, but we're just now really getting into the text, a couple, three verses in. So it's not, not too late if you don't stick around for that second hour, not too late to, to join in and be a part of that because we are right at the at the front end of that of that particular um, that particular book. So let's turn our attention to things that are going on in the chat room. I see y'all out there. Um, uh, uh, Mimi's here and Sandra and Deborah uh, and Gita and the usual crowd. Joyce, good to see you. Christine, Melissa, um, Donna. I missed somebody going through that list, but thank y'all all for tuning in. Um, and um, let's see where we are. Um, there's a question from the aforementioned Jonathan. Jonathan's always good for a question. The problem is Jonathan's questions often are not easy. <laughs> so uh, let's see. Let's see what we got here today. Um, what is your view on Daniel's 70 weeks? Thank you for that, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you much for that. Um, thank you much. Um, my view on Daniel's 70 weeks is, um, it is what it is. Hold on. I got my Bible program on the wrong screen. Um, and we started moving this weekend, uh, getting all the packing and painting and all that stuff you do, started getting it prepped. So my, my, if you notice, my background has changed back there. Just noticed my lamp is crooked. Somebody should fix that because we moved, shuffled around. Uh, but yeah, we have been moving things around and trying to declutter the house, get some of the stuff that we don't need out. We're probably going to end up renting this place out, which means you got to get all your personal belongings out. So that's what we've spent the weekend doing. This is the first time I've sat down in front of my computer since about Friday. Um, so, uh, but yeah, anyway, that, that's what I was wondering. How did I get on that topic? I lost my train of thought. Oh, oh, I know. That's why that popped in my brain is because my, my setup in front of me is, I was wondering, how did I get from Daniel 9 to talking about that? It's because my, the reason my Bible program is on the wrong screen is because part of that involved, you can't see it, it's in my desk in front of me. We ended up moving all the stuff around on my desk. So once again, all my, all my monitors and stuff, they're, they're, they're movable, they're on frames, and they're all in the wrong spot and stuff. So anyway, um, let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. Let's get that screen share going, and we'll talk about that. Um Let's get that screen share going. There, there it is. And there we go. All right. And we turn it on. And now the screen is shared. And I still don't know which one of these I like the best. That one blocks it. I'm going to go with this one. Okay. Nope. I'm not, I'm not going to go with that one. I'm going to go with I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with this one. I'm going to go with this one. It's just going to cover me up while I have Daniel, while I have uh, Jonathan's um, thing there. I'm going to turn that off. All right. Daniel's nine. Um. Well, for those who I probably need to back up some uh, and just give you all some, I don't know if everybody would be familiar with Daniel 9 or not. Um, of course, Daniel is in um, part of the Babylonian captivity. He, he, he serves in the palace with Nebuchadnezzar. He actually continues to serve in the um, uh, palace of, of, of Cyrus and Darius, uh, the kings of the Medes and the Persians who first um, overtook um uh, Babylon, Darius actually led the invasion, and Cyrus uh, uh, came in and took full uh, leadership uh, a few years later on, it appears. Uh, but it is in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. Uh, he is by a descent of Mede, 
Um, and the Medes uh, were part of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, Persia, and those of Persian descent eventually um, um, took uh, took over the um, the uh, prominence within the kingdom, as Daniel eight <coughs> would suggest. Uh, but anyway, um, is in the first year of Darius, so this is going to be about five thirty nine to about five thirty seven, depending on how you date things. Uh, but call it just call it five thirty nine from now. I think Cyrus actually takes. Uh, full regency of Babylon around 537, 536. Um, doing that from memory, Jonathan, thank you for this once again. Uh, but I think that's that's in the ballpark of, of right. I may be off a year or two there, so don't don't quote me too hard on it, but I don't think I'm too far off on that. Um, he, has made, he has made meat over the realm of the Chaldeans. Um, <clears throat> in the first year of his reigns, I, Daniel, perceived, it's perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay. Uh, so Jeremiah, I believe it's Jeremiah 25, I want to say 25, 11. Uh, Jeremiah prophesies that they, that Israel would go into captivity and they would serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Uh, now this, I believe has some relevance. I think that date starts in the, with the first inver- invasion of uh, by Nebuchadnezzar uh, of Jerusalem or of, of Judea in about 606-607 uh, BC. Um, and um, 70 years from that would be about 537-536. So about the time that Cyrus takes rulership of the, of the land of, um, um, of, uh, of, uh, of um, uh, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. So from the end of the reign of, uh, or the, the beginning of the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar to the beginning of the reign of Cyrus, right at 70 years. And Jeremiah prophesied that that's how long that that prophecy would last. Well, Daniel would know this. Uh, Daniel's an elderly man at this point, but he was alive on the front end and he's alive on the back end. And he's figured out, hey, it's about time for this um, this this captivity to come to an end. And so um, most, of the, most of Daniel chapter nine is a prayer from Daniel confessing uh, the sins of the nation uh, and petitioning God to uh, end this uh, this captivity. Okay, uh, and that goes on. It's a great prayer, by the way. We don't have time to read it today, um, but um, it, it is a is, is a great prayer, great study about how to petition God. Uh, lots of lessons could be could be taken it from there. But um, I mean, just um, uh, start here in verse sixteen. Um, let your anger, your wrath turn away from your city, your holy hill, because of our sins, the iniquities of our fathers. We've become a byword among the nations around us. Oh God, listen to our prayer, your servant, uh, and for your own sake, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Uh, Oh God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes in our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Uh, For we do not present our pleas before you for our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear, oh Lord, forgive, oh Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, oh my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Uh, by the way, um, an amazing concept is um, in that in that prayer about four times. Uh, how just go back and read just that that four verses right there. There's those four verses right there, and notice how uh, how directly Daniel ties his petition to the glory of God. Um, if we could do that more in our prayer, uh, you know, listen to your prayer for for the uh, for your servant to his pleas for mercy, 
and do it for your own sake. Your sanctuary is desolate, the city that is called by your name, uh, because it, it is uh, your great mercy. And again, these people are called by your name. Um, there is a, a wonderful lesson just in that about how you petition God and how maybe we should spend more of our time in prayer to God. Uh, more about him, less about us, okay? Um, and you want to start talking about providence? Somebody asked me about providence the other day, and I said I wasn't going to get myself in trouble, and then I started spilling and talking and trying to get myself in trouble anyway. But this is the kind of thing I mean. The providence of God is not necessarily providing for us. The providence of God provides for his will. Well, you know, Genesis 22, the Lord will provide himself a ram. Abraham, Abraham's getting a ram, not because of Abraham. Abraham's going to get a ram because of God. That's the way that works. Uh, the providence of God, ultimately, the highest calling for the providence of God is to provide for himself, to get his will done. And that's essentially what Daniel's prayer is here. Your name is being, uh, you know, if your people are a byword among the nations, then your name is too. Um, and so that that's a, that, that is a, a, a strong petition to God every time that it's made. But that's not our, not our point. Okay. Uh, while Daniel says I was uh, speaking, while I was offering this prayer, uh, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me with swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Okay. Um, and so here he says, here is the, here is the prophecy that is upon the, um, uh, that, that, that is a, a response to the, um, 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 to the prayer of Daniel. Okay, here's the response. 70 weeks are decreed. I guess I could turn that on for you. I don't know if that made the screen too small or not. Getting various reports about whether y'all like the uh, comments to be on the screen or not, but I'm going to turn that on as y'all start to comment and, and, and see. Uh, but 70 weeks are decreed uh, about your people uh, and about your holy city. And it says seven things are going to happen. So this is the 70 weeks of Daniel. So 70 weeks have a decree about the people and about the holy city. Within the span of these 70 weeks, here's what's going to happen. We're going to finish the transgression. We're going to put an end to sin. We're going to atone for iniquity. We're going to bring in everlasting righteousness. We're going to seal both the vision and the prophet, and we're going to anoint a most holy place. So I believe there's that six things there. Uh, I believe there are six things there that are going to be accomplished within this span of 70 weeks. Um, and then he says, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of, of the anointed one, a, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, right? So there's seven, seven of the 70 weeks that leaves 63 left. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So the city is going to be built, and there are going to be um, um, uh, 62 weeks of restoration of the city, but it's going to be trouble. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be, um, you know, necessarily. Uh, it's going to be defensible, but it's not going. It's not going to uh, not going to thrive. It's going to be a troubled time. Uh, and after the 62 weeks, so that's actually after the 69, because the seven. And then the 62, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Um, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
its end shall come with a flood, and to the, and to the end there will be war. Uh, desolations are decreed. Uh, and he shall make covenant with many for um, one week. Okay, so that would be your 70th week. He's going to make a covenant with many for 70 or uh, um, so one week. So we've got seven, we have 62, and then we have one. Now that one, that final week is broken in half. It says, and for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and an offering. And on the wings of on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed is poured out on the desolator. All right. So there's a lot of stuff in there. And y'all, you know, you read through that and you're like, what in the world is 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 this is this talking about? And that is that is a good response to have because on some level, what in the world is this talking about? Um, there are a lot of different a lot of different views out there. Uh, about this, and we could go through the whole litany of of the different um, uh, views that are that are there. Um, it, this is a passage that um, um, premillennialists love to go to um, and try to establish some, some premillennial timelines from it. They talk about it often. Uh, as we've talked about for some time, the realize, realize eschatologists have a lot to say about this passage, um, and and so on. Uh, really, really, there, there are two or three major considerations here. Um, one, is this prophecy messianic or not? Does it, does it go down all the way to the, uh, to the time of the Christ? That, that's, that's, uh, that's question number one, okay? Uh, question number two is, what city, obviously, are we talking about? Some people say Jerusalem, some people say Rome. Uh, and then the, number three is, is this a fulfilled prophecy in its entirety or not? Uh, is this a future prophecy? All right. To answer those questions, and I'm going to try to do this in a somewhat reasonable time frame here, and this is an overview, not an extensive look at the passage. Um, number one, uh, as, as, as we do here, just right off the top of our head, when y'all pop a question in, this is an unprepared, not prepped uh, not even thought about answer to the question. So it's not going to be as thorough as perhaps it could be. Um, the, um, the, the answer to those questions, if I can remember all three of them, because that was more than 30 seconds ago, I have to remember the three that I said are on the table here. Number one, I do believe it's messianic. I believe it's messianic. Um, the anointed one and, and some of those other things that are in there, we'll talk about more fully in just a second seem clearly to be talking about the Christ, or at least the time of the Christ, as, as well as the six things that are going to be accomplished, all right? Um, you find out those six things, you're going to have a real good indication about what time frame we're talking about. And the description of those six things, I don't know how you put down to any other point than Messianic. So I believe it's Messianic. Secondly, uh, I think it's very clearly talking about Jerusalem. Uh, verse number 24 says, I mean, first of all, the context, first, first 23 verses, Daniel is praying about the fate of Jerusalem, about the restoration of the temple, or the restoration of Jerusalem and the restoration of the temple. So that's the context. Gabriel's vision comes in response to the prayer of Daniel. So I don't know how you get this passage to refer to anything other than Jerusalem. It is about your people, which would be the Jews and your holy city. The holy city in the Bible is Jerusalem. There is no other holy city. Uh, Rome is not the holy city. Never has been, never will be. Jerusalem is the holy city in the Bible, right? That, that, that's, 
that should be clear. That, that doesn't take a genius to figure out the city of David, the place of the temple. Uh, it, it's it, it's Jerusalem is the holy city. Okay, so it's about Jerusalem. Now, is it about things past or things future? Well, again, if you take the um, the uh, uh, statement here that these six things are going to be accomplished. And then you tie that to the statement about the desolations and the the abomination of desolations. Um, and you tie that to the New Testament passages, which we'll do here in just a moment. It seems pretty clear that this to me is about, the, since the holy city here is Jerusalem and the abomination of desolations is mentioned within this text, that this is going to be a text about something that has already been accomplished. So my my overall view is this text is about the fall of the city of Jerusalem and its fate. Okay. Um, now, what do you do with the with the time frame with the seventy weeks? Okay. Um, it gets a little complicated. Now, the most common view is that these 70 weeks are not 70 weeks, literally, but they are 70 weeks of years. And I'm sure I got this right when it was asked on the test. There is a, a name for that as, 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 as the commentators and scholars talk about prophetic literature. There is a name for saying that, um, you know what, that, Y'all talked about that last time. The logo goes right over the top of the chat when I do that. Okay. Um, the, the, there's a name for it. And I can't remember what it is. They're, they're, they try to establish it from some, some passages in the, uh, in the Old Testament where this, this form is seen before. I'm not sure it's 100% uh, 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 certain that these 70 weeks are meant to be weeks of years because it, it gets very difficult to work out the dating. And that's a lot of the problem when it comes to the, um, uh, the figuring out of what this is. But let's just say for a second that the standard approach to this text is roughly right. So you would have 70 weeks of years, seven days in a week, that's 490 total days. If a day is a year, that's 490 years that we're dealing with, right? So what you have here in the time statement is that 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Okay, so we start in verse number 25 in identifying those dates. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed uh, anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, which would take you then 49 years. All right? Now, um, but let's take the whole thing together. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem, that is your beginning point, to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem is 70 weeks. All right? We went over some of the dating of it. The beginning of the dating of, of this, the reign of Cyrus begins in about 536 BC. Okay. Shortly thereafter, as you read through the book of Nehemiah, there is a, uh, um, um, 
I, I nope, I'm in, I'm, in my, I'm in my wrong book. As you read through uh, the book of Ezra, uh, you start to see some of the uh, 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 calls to return. There were three of them altogether um, that were um, um, in place in terms of sending people back. There were three captivities. There were three returns from captivity. Uh, the three returns of the captivity, uh, led by what, Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah, um, were done. Boy, Jonathan, you are hurting my brain this morning. I think they were started in five, I want to say 536, about 465, and then 445. I believe that's right. I, might, I may be wrong on, on one of those, but around that time frame, most people reject the 536 date because you only have 490 years and the first the first return its primary concern was to the to rebuilding the temple so most people start the count of the 70 weeks from the from the return of Nehemiah um, the return of Nehemiah was when what when the 20th year of Artaxerxes or, or um, the Artaxerxes Longimanus I think uh, I believe that was four was it 445? Um, oh, man, you're hurting my brain here. I'm trying to pull those dates out of my head. It's been a long time since I've gone over this, Jonathan. Thank you for reminding me how long it's been since I've been over this. Um, but around that time frame. So that's usually where the commentators start with it because if you, let's take 465 four, um, or something of that nature, uh, and you have 490 years to work with, that gives you roughly 35 years or so to get down to um, – uh, which basically takes you up into the time of Pentecost. Okay, um, so they get the 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 seventy weeks there. So if you start in you know four fifty ish, and you have four hundred ninety years, that's going to get you down to roughly AD forty for your seventy weeks, which obviously gets you into the time of the gospel of the church. So that's normally where where people start the count is somewhere in the in the four sixty five to four forty five range. Okay. Um, and that gets you down to, if you take 69 of those weeks, subtract seven from some, say from 40, that gets you back down to about 80, 30 and this in the establishment of the church in Acts chapter two. Um, that's roughly how people do it. So in the first block, you have seven weeks to the coming of an anointed prince. Now you can go all over the map there about who, who the anointed prince is. It's some, apparently some ruler. So, so from the beginning of the, um, uh, from, from, the, from the call to, of the restoration down to that period of time. So if, you're, if you start 450-ish, just to give me some round numbers, seven weeks would be roughly 50 years, 49 years. So sometime around the year 400, a prince is in the city of Jerusalem. Okay. I don't know who that is. Uh, I've seen different thoughts about it, but I don't know. I don't know who that was. Okay. The 62 weeks then gets you down to the rest of essentially the intertestament period. Uh, if you want to understand the troubled time of the intertestament period, particularly as it culminates toward the end, uh, read Daniel's, 10 and, Daniel's chapter 10 and 11. There is an extensive prophecy in Daniel's 10 and 11 that seemingly covers most of the intertestament period. Uh, if you know anything about the, the, um, uh, the, the kingdom of, of, of Alexander, uh, Alexander obviously conquers most of the known world. Uh, his kingdom, when he when he passes, is divided up into four kingdoms. His four generals take over. Uh, you know, they divide up his kingdom. Uh, the two that matter the most for Israel are to the, the family of the Ptolemies and the family of the Seleucids. 
that, that ruled over Egypt and then Syria and, and Israel obviously being right in the middle of it, uh, suffered a lot during the wars between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and the times that follow until finally, uh, you know, Rome uh, you know, takes over and, and so on. Uh, if you ever hear any, ever hear anybody talk about Antiochus Epiphanes or some something of that nature, some some of the, some of those names, um, it's it's during this time frame. All right, some horrible things are done in the temple and in the city uh, during that period of time. But that takes you down roughly to the about the birth of Christ. Okay, uh, you're 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 69 weeks or about the, about the establishment of the church. You're 69 weeks into this by the time you get to the end or the, the or until you get to that troubled time, uh, the end of that troubled time might be a better way of saying it there in the um, 69th week. So again, standard approach here. Um, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and it shall have nothing. Now, normally after that 62 weeks, so after the 69th week, because we're breaking it into three blocks, an anointed one is cut off. Now, almost always people point that to Jesus, okay? An anointed one is cut off at the end of the 69th week. So the 69th week. So the goal of the commentators is to get the 69th week to end. So that would be um, uh, 441 years. Is that right? Is my math right on that? I think that would be 41 years or 441 years from the beginning of the 70 weeks to get to the point where the Christ is cut off at the crucifixion, right? And then it says, and the people of the prince who has come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now herein is where this system, in my opinion, really starts to break down because there is almost no way that you can get this statement completed within seven years, one, one more week. Um, um, at that time, no, no matter what your view is. Now, premillennialists will say there at this point between the 69th and 70th week, there is a gap. All right. The 70th week has not yet been accomplished. God is still waiting for the 70th week to happen because the Israelites, the Jews rejected Jesus. And so God held the rest of this in abeyance. Um, the, the, the realized eschatologist would say that we have to get from the 69th week down to the 70th week, but the 70th week is not fulfilled until, uh, AD 70 with the fall of Jerusalem, right? But if you, if you get the 70th week and you're going with this 490 years scheme to get this 70th week accomplished, by uh, so so that it ends in AD seventy. If all you have is four hundred and ninety years, that means you have to start the count in four twenty BC. Well, there's no way this the 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 um, the word going forth to restore and to build Jerusalem happens in in four twenty. The city's already been rebuilt by then. The Old Testament is you know uh, most people were going to date the end of the Old Testament Malachi somewhere around four thirty or so. Uh, so either it's either either the Old Testament is just about fully completed or it's already been completed and we're into the 400 silent years that we talk about between uh, 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 Malachi and, 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 the, and the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, so it just doesn't work. So everybody using this 490 year scheme, everybody on some level has to have a gap here somehow. You have to get from the cross 
down to 8070. All right. Now, in this period of time, though, there's an interesting feature. The prince of the people who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, depending on your dating, the prince of the people who is to come, usually that is made some kind of Roman emperor, all right, or a Roman general. So like Vespasian or Titus, or if if it's if if you're going for a, a yet future thing, some kind of restored ruler of, of a, a new Roman Empire of some sort, some someone is going to come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Uh, it's going to come with a flood. I don't think that means a literal water flood. I think it's just going to, it's going to get overwhelmed. It's going to be destroyed. There's going to be war at the end, and there are going to be desolations everywhere. And to, to tie the word together, there are going to be abominations everywhere. Now, to get to your question there, um, uh, 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 Jonathan, somewhere earlier, I think you said a few minutes ago, um, um, where was that? Um, I lost I lost it. I already scrolled off the screen. Um Jonathan just asked, "Could this be about the? Could, could this be about the? Um, um, there it is. Uh, so could this be about the the eighty seventy destruction of Jerusalem? I think it is, and that's exactly what I think it is, because uh, if you um, if you take take the language from there, the abomination of desolations, you read about it elsewhere in the book of Daniel, but um, Jesus says very clearly." Um, Verse 15 of Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, well, there it is. It's first mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. There's going to, he's, there, desolation is going to come. It's going to come with abominations. I think it's also mentioned as it chapter 12. When you see that happening, know that the end is near. Okay. Uh, if, you're in, if you're in Judea, flee into the mountains. Don't go back into the house. Don't just, just run. When you see the abominations of desolations coming, get out of town. It's too late. Run. Okay, um, and so I would say, yeah, very clearly, uh, this this abomination of desolations has to be the um, the um, um, the fall of Jerusalem. So, but I don't know how you get four hundred ninety weeks, four hundred ninety years down to eighty seventy. I don't I don't see how you do that. But here's an interesting feature, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for one half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay. Um, and so what you have here is this last week is cut in half. So you have a week of three and a half years, and you have another week of three and a half years, or you have a period of three and a half years, and another period of three and a half years, if 70 weeks are years. Okay. If that's true, then you have that. Now, I cannot help but notice the similarity between that and the 42 months of the book of Revelation, or as you even have in Daniel chapter um, 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 chapter 12, again, you have that time of trouble. Uh, and in that time of trouble, as Daniel is getting the vision explained to himself, you're going to seal up that vision until the end of time. But you also have that time, times, and half of a time to shatter the power of the holy people, okay? Where, where you come to the end of all things and so on. So you have time, one, times two, and then which makes three, and then a half, which makes three and a half, which is strangely enough, the half of a week. And then you still have that 200 and 1290 days, which in the terms of days on a 360 day lunar calendar, 
would be 300 would be three and a half years can't help notice the similarities and i don't believe there are coincidences in my bible when i see that i go oh okay those things must somehow fit together so the 42 months and the time time and half of time of revelation and that that same language here in daniel chapter 9 and that three and a half weeks right in the middle i think that's that's got that has to be connected somehow uh, now there's some dispute about who the he is in verse number 27 he shall make a strong covenant with many is that the power of the prince of the, pe- the people the, the 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 prince of the people which probably is rome or is that uh, a reference back up here to the anointed one and maybe he is making a covenant with with many about the gospel maybe starting to spread among the gentiles something of that nature there's all kind of thoughts here so uh the end of these 70 weeks is the wings of abomination comes and he makes desolate and the decree is it, it, the, the, the decreed end is poured out on the desolator so there's a judgment apparently that comes on the desolator himself so i can't help but notice in the in the end the one who is the desolator has um the same problem he 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 ends up as a part of a a decreed outpouring upon him as well that sounds a whole lot like the little horn of daniel chapter 7 because he makes war with the saints of the most high that's not the church that's israel the saints of the most high in the book of daniel is, is israel okay and they are given into his hand for once again time times at half a time so three and a half so if those are years that fits really nicely with Daniel 9, okay? So that would be three and a half. Now, what is at the end of his three and a half years of when he is he, he has control over the, over the saints of the Most High? Well, at the end of those three and a half years, the court sits in judgment, his dominion is taken away, and he, he is destroyed to the end. The kingdom and the dominion, the greatness of the kingdom, is taken from him and given to another, which sounds a whole lot like Daniel 2, where the stone, which is the kingdom, kingdom set up in the days of those kings, takes control, or or takes prominence, rather not control, but takes prominence away from the four images of Daniel 2, and its glory shall never, it shall not be left to another people, its glory shall never be given to another people. I can't help but notice that three and a half motif keeps coming back back and forth, and both the, the vision of Daniel 9 and the vision of Daniel 7 end with a spoiling of the little horn or the prince of the people or of the desolator. So um, to, to, to sum this up, I believe the 70 weeks do refer to the period between the, the restoration of Israel. Now, whether that is to begin with the return of Ezra or down, I think Nehemiah is the last one, right? I want to say this, as I've been pondering this as I've been talking, I really think it was 445. Uh, when Nehemiah returned, whether it be whether it be the 536 date or the 445 date, I don't know. Um, but I'm, it's somewhere in that time frame you start to count. Um, the thing I'm least certain about is that 70 weeks of years are are to be taken as literally as people take them. That 70 weeks of years must therefore be exactly 490 years. Um, I'm not a huge fan of of putting too much importance on numbers but 70 and 7 I've seen that elsewhere how often do you forgive your brother until 70 times 7 can't help but notice that's a very similar almost idiomatic type approach to things 
And Jesus was not telling Peter, you need to forgive your brother 400 or 490 times. So I don't know that you can take these 70 weeks to be exactly 490 years. I don't think that's the point. Uh, because as I said earlier, there is a, a name for it. And, they, and, and if, I were, if I were prepped for this discussion fully, I could pull up the verses where I think they are. Um, but there are a couple of other passages in the Bible where people try to get that um, uh, that that system to have that system have some kind of textual basis. I just I don't know off the top of my head. I don't know that that's the right way to do this because the, the the text never makes that point explicitly. Um, I just know there's four, seventy times seven seventy weeks determined about the city, and at the end of these seventy weeks, and those weeks are sufficient to accomplish the task. Here's what's going to happen. A short period of time and there's going to be a prince. For the bulk of the time, the city is going to be is going to be there, but it's going to be troubled. And it was. The intertestament period, some of the darkest days in Israel's history. Okay. And then at the very end of that, um, the, the anointed one's going to come. And uh, in the same era and in the same time frame, the destruction is going to come. Now, to me, I don't, the reason I don't think these are exactly 70 weeks is the connection between the cutting off of the, of the anointed one and the coming of the prince of the people. Turn with me, if you will, over to Zechariah. Okay. Zechariah 13. And we're going to come, we're going to go to this passage twice here together. Um, this actually starts back up in chapter 12 where uh, the spirit of grace is, is, is poured out upon the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem when they look on on him, or they look on me on him whom they pierced. Uh, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, weep bitterly over him as one beats, uh, 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 weeps over a firstborn. Um, and so obviously who are the, who we're talking about who's been pierced and so on. Um, don't forget in that, oh yeah, I want to get verse 11 in there. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be great as the morning of Hadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. Okay, you know what that is? It's Armageddon. Okay, that, that's the, the, the older name for Armageddon. Okay, they're going to do that on the day. Look at verse 11. On that day, they're going to look on me, on him whom they have pierced. On that day... The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the, 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 fam, the family of the house of David by itself. Strictly noting here, this judgment is said to come on the house of David. Well, Isaiah 7 says that the house of David is going to last until a virgin bears a child whose name is called Emmanuel. After that point, the house of David is not going to survive. That's the point. So on the day that they look on whom, whom the one whom they've pierced, on that day, mourning's going to happen in Jerusalem. On that day. I keep fo focusing on that phrase, on that day. Let's follow that phrase now through Zechariah. On that day, fountain for sin and uncleanness is open. Okay, what day is that? Well, that'd be Pentecost. That's when the fountain for sin and uncleanness was open, Acts chapter 2. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off the name of the idols so that they will be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the, and the unclean spirits, the demons. Well, wait a minute. On that day, they will look on him whom they've pierced. That's Revelation chapter 1, uh, when Jesus comes in judgment, the judgment of Revelation, which I think is AD 70. So Revelation 1 is about AD 70. 
I mean, uh, uh, Zechariah, uh, um, yeah, Revelation 1 about AD 70. So Zechariah 12, I believe, is also AD 70. But then Zechariah 13, 1, on that same day, on that day, phrase hasn't changed, is the day that the fountain for sin, for sin and uncleanness is open. Well, that's Pentecost. Okay, on that day, the prophet and the unclean spirit passes from the land. I think that's 70. But it's still on that day. And again, on that day, there we have it again. But then verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. What are we talking about there? When I'm talking about 70, okay? Um, and then he says in verse four, chapter 14, verse 1, A day is coming for the Lord when the, the spoil is taken out of Jerusalem. And once again, we have verse 4, On that day, all the way through this, verse 6, on that day, um, on that day, verse number nine. It, I don't. It, I'm going to catch all of these. It is all through here, from Zechariah 12 through Zechariah 14. It is on that day, on that day, on that day, and the day covers Pentecost all the way to 70. Biblically speaking, it's not. It's not two separate events. It's one singular day. It's one event in the fulfilling of biblical prophecy. If you will, it is the fullness of time. If you will, it is the last days. It's one event in biblical prophecy. Look at this in, in Malachi chapter 4. The first coming of Jesus, which Malachi 3 talks about the coming of John the Baptist. Behold, the day, singular day, is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. He's talking here about he's talking here about his own people. On that day, a day is coming when that's going to happen. Well, we know it wasn't a singular day, it took three and a half years. But more importantly, look at this. When that day is coming, you who fear on my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings. Okay. Uh, you shall tread down the wicked. They shall be as ashes before you and so on. And then verse five, he says, behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We're not talking here about expanses. We're talking here about singular events. These are connected. When Jesus comes, when you see Jesus coming, no two things are happening. Salvation for those who are humble and final judgment for the nation that rejects him. So in, Mount, in Matthew chapter 3, John says, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. And then the, the Pharisees come out to him and he says, You brood of vipers who, fleed, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Well, there's a couple of answers to that you could possibly give. One would be John. John is warning them right now of the wrath to come. Another possibility would be Malachi, because Malachi had warned them of the wrath to come. But if they answered that question, if they said Malachi has warned us to flee from the mouth to come, wrath to come, they would be acknowledging that the son of righteousness has also arisen. They can't answer the question. It's rhetorical, certainly, because they won't repent. But they can't, because the moment they do, they acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ or that John is Elijah the prophet telling them of the Christ. But notice what he says. 
I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Go back to Malachi 4. When he comes, he is going to come with healing in his wings. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's also going to set the earth ablaze. He's going to burn it with fire. Those two events, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the setting on fire of the people of God, were separated by 40 years. But it's one event. In the Bible, it's one event, separated by 40 years. So I don't have a problem in the world, if I can get back here to Daniel chapter 9, understanding that what we have here from verse 24 down to verse 27 is one event. Look what's going to be accomplished. That's where we started. We need to go back. When was the transgression finished? Well, depending on what you make of that phrase, crucifixion. Put an end to sin. Obviously not put an end to the, the, the happening of sin because that's still going on. Okay, John, 1 John chapter 1. But how about we put an end to the power of sin? Something of that nature. To atone for iniquity. Wonder when, when did we do that? When did we put when did that happen? How about the crucifixion? To bring in an everlasting righteousness. Crucifixion? Preaching of the gospel, Acts 2. I love this next one. To seal up vision and profit. We're going to seal up all prophecy, all the prophets. Zechariah 13, I will cause the prophet to pass from the land. You see, there's a reason that I know Revelation is not written in AD 96. is because in AD 96, there were no prophets. Seventy weeks are determined upon Jerusalem. And by the end of those 70 weeks, we're going to seal up the prophet. And on that day, the prophet will pass from the land. Bible's written by 8070. I don't have a doubt in my mind about it. To anoint a most holy place, not the temple, because this book is this prophecy is about the destruction of the temple. What holy place are we anointing? We're anointing the church. Part of that is going to be the removal of the things that stand. One more time, he's going to speak and he's going to remove the things that can be shaken so that the thing that cannot be shaken might remain. And what is the thing that cannot be shaken? How about that holy mountain that we've come to? Heavenly Zion. Hebrews chapter 12. So this prophecy is about the fall of Jerusalem. The only hang-up I really have with it is how do you fit the 70 weeks in? And the only reason you have a hang-up about the 70 weeks is people try to take them literally. Or with the, that, that rigid structure of 7 times 7 must be 490. There may very well be a system that works almost 490, and, and it may very well be that it's intended to be 490 years. But as my dad, if my dad were here, he probably would have answered this question much more quickly. But if my dad were here, he would tell you, listen, the Bible doesn't say it. If the Bible doesn't say it, we don't need to know it. I know what this is talking about. This is talking about the sealing up of the judgment of the holy city and the creation 
of a of of a new holy place, a new holy place being uh, 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 anointed, and of the vision and the prophet being completed, the fullness of time being here. All of this, you know, First Peter four would say, the end of all things is at hand. That's what it's talking about. Can I make all the dates work? Not necessarily, but there you go, you got them. Um, so that's what I would do with it. Let's see what y'all have said during that period of time that I was taking an hour to answer that. Um, huh. Yeah, Christine, I got that way be- way messed up on my uh, my dating there, didn't I? Or my, my math. I-, I have been known to do that. Um, let's see. Let's see what we get. Let's go and see what we have here. Um, um, any things I have to um, um, have to get lots of good comments in there. Just seeing if there are any of those I need to address to to wrap up the hour. Um, um, <laughs> I like Mimi's comment in here. Uh, th- these are the conversations and deliberations that create new religions. <laughs> you know, you're you're not wrong there, Mimi. You're not. When people try to say say more than they can prove, you can really get into some uh, some uh, some trouble with it. Um, but uh, not not sure about your question there, Jonathan. Could it also be the day of Pentecost? The end of the, yeah, the if the end point of seventy weeks, I don't you know it. The end point has to be the abomination of desolation. Okay, that that much I know. The end point of the seventy weeks is the abomination of desolation because that that's what that's what is said down here in verse twenty six and twenty seven. Um, and so it, on some level, it has to uh, has to has to jump down to to, to eighty seventy somehow. Um, but again, as I said, I don't know of any system using the four hundred ninety year construct that that makes that happen. And um, just F, again, FYI, I don't, I, I have no reason to think the 490 years is, 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 of, is of any biblical import at all. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying, I, I, how do I know it's right? The, the evidence that I've seen to support that as being the, you know, the only way that we can talk about this passage and every week has to work out perfectly, I don't know. Okay, I, I I tend to think that word that term seventy is 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 again I don't like to put a lot of significance in b- biblical numerology, but that seems like a big nice round complete number. And really, the only thing that is interest of me in terms of the actual dating of some of this, the only one that 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 I can find um, other other prophecy that uses the same motif. The same, same uh, breakdown would be the three and a half weeks or the three and a half at the end of the, the, the I guess that'd be half the weeks so or the three and a half days. And that three and a half or time, time, half a time repeats in the book of Daniel. It repeats in the book of Revelation. That's the part that's significant to me. That's the part that that uh, I think really goes along with, uh, with with some of these other prophecies. And since those other prophecies are talking about the same subject matter, as Daniel nine, while I may or may not be able to properly identify what the significance of when that what that three and a half is, I certainly can see the thematic cons- consistency between Daniel seven, Daniel twelve, the prophecies of the Book of Revelation, and you know, obviously Daniel nine, and the subject matter of, of of all of that, seemingly pointing to the exact same thing, which again is the the content of Matthew twenty four. So that works for me very nicely, but again. I don't know that the, the 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 prophecy itself is trying to tell you the exact date of when the three and a half begins. 
I just think it's it's a time, time, and half a time. It, it, it's just right there again. So anyway, that, that's what I would um, um, do. Let's see, Travis just said, uh, if the sealing up of vision and prophecy applies to the Christ, not Jerusalem, then the destruction does not have to be in the 70 weeks just after. Um, to do that, though, Travis, you would have to take, and this is what I said earlier, um, like I, I had a, where, where are we? Right at nine o'clock. Okay. Um, I had one of the, one, I had a teacher in school that said that the, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Uh, and the, and the, and for half of the week, he shall put it into sacrifice and offering. He actually pointed that back, that he back to the anointed prince. And I think what he did was he took the first three and a half years of the three and a half weeks or of the, of the final week, I think he said that that ended with the taking of the gospel to the Samaritans, which I always thought was kind of weak because that, that first of all, that doesn't get you to the Gentiles technically. But um, so he, he made that to be the, the anointed one. Okay. To say that the, that this could be talking about the Christ, then maybe you could make that, that make that point. I if 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 you had to ask me, I think that he probably is referring to the prince of the people. And if the prince of the people is the one that destroys the city, then this final week has to take place during the time of the prince of the people. So your 70th week has to take place during the period of time when the prince of the people is decreeing desolations. And I can't get that to Pentecost. I, to, to me, that has to be that has to be 70. Um, so maybe we talk about it some later, but that just, that, that would be, that would be, that would be my thinking on the matter is that the Prince of the people is included in the 70th week, which means I can't get the 70 weeks closed at Pentecost. I mean, I, I guess you could say, but even if, even if you made the three and a half weeks, the three, you know, three and a half years of the earthly ministry of Jesus, you still have three and a half years after, maybe that's what my instructor did with it. Maybe he made the, um, the three and a half year ministry puts an end to sacrifice and offering. And so at least their efficacy ends at the cross. And then, um, but see, then you've got the abomination. You still have to get the abomination of desolation in that second three and a half, in that second three and a half. So I, I, in terms of trying to make this fit a strict, strict 490 year system, I, I, I can't come up with one that works for me. Uh, every time I craft an argument, trying to use it, I can answer my own argument in a way that I, I don't know how to respond to it. So um, that, that leads me to think I'm not, I, I, I just don't think it's supposed to be 490 years. Uh, you know, put that proverbial gun to my head and, and make me ch make a choice. I'm going to say it's not supposed to be exactly 490 years. Uh, that, that, that's, that's my answer to it because I think that's also works. Okay. Um, Travis says the first sentence applies to the Christ then after. First sentence applies to the Christ. The first sentence. Then after and after the 62 weeks, maybe. Let's see, that only gets you to 69 because you have seven. All right. Anyway, we'll have to figure that out. We'll all stop there and we will we will stop and um, uh, take our break as we do at the top of the hour here. And we will be back, Lord willing, in just a moment and continue um uh, continue our study. Let, let me know if this works for you. If this layout works. I kind of like 
I like having the chat up there so the YouTube people can see Facebook and Facebook can see YouTube so y'all can see what everybody's saying all at once. But it takes up some screen space. It does make the text smaller. So let me know what y'all think about this layout and, and whether or not we want to keep going that way or not. That'd be a good conversation during the break. But I'm going to stop right here. Uh, and we will be right back in just a couple minutes as we continue our look at, uh, or we, yeah, we'll continue our look at the book, book of First Peter uh, in just a moment together. Be right back with you. All right, everybody. Um, all right, welcome back to uh, From the Deep in There. Just to, excuse me a second. I was just reading through some of y'all's comments while I was gone. But um, um, we are going to turn our attention now to the um, um, book of First Peter. That's where we are. We are in First Peter uh, uh, chapter one together. Uh, and uh, thankful for uh, uh, your participation in the first hour of the class. I uh, thought it was uh, 
um, a good discussion. Um, like I said, Jonathan always brings me a question or two, and and yay, thank you. <laughs> but it's a it's a um, Daniel nine is a is a interesting passage to try and try and get your brain wrapped around. It is not easy by any stretch of the imagination, and um, it's it's not. Welcome back, everybody, to the second hour of From the Deep End. <laughs> uh, unless you're on the audio feed. On the audio feed, it actually takes it off the microphone. So y'all just heard the introduction to the second part of the program. On the video feed, none of y'all heard that. Not a one of y'all heard that because I had muted it on the on the browser, and it was just muted. So there you go. Uh, that, that was not good. Um, but let's try that again for the second hour of the program. Welcome back. Uh, appreciate the comments in, in the uh, uh, first hour there. Thank you, Jonathan, for the question. Um, as such as it is hurting my brain, I appreciate that. Um, but uh, Daniel 9 is a great text um, and lots of wonderful things in the book of Daniel. Not all of them easy, um, easy to understand, but uh, it is always um, needful. Don't, don't ever turn away from... Um, um, from what the, um, the, what the text says, uh, even if it's hard, keep, keep, keep working on it. Don't be afraid to, don't be afraid to be wrong. Okay. It, it's okay. Uh, just keep, uh, just keep working on it. You'll, you'll, you'll eventually, uh, get your, um, your, your, um, uh, ideas corrected and get them, you know, back, back into the, into the way that you want them to be. Um, if you just keep Sticking with the text, the text will guide you back to itself if you just if you just stay honest with it and and um, uh, don't don't give up. So don't don't be afraid of them, even if even if you don't know what they're talking about or or you know, hey, it's okay. Just just keep keep being honest, keep studying, you'll work through it. So, having said that, let's turn our attention back to First Peter. Um, we are still in chapter one, uh, obviously. Um, <laughs> Marlon, you caught that, did you? Took me an hour to catch it. Uh, Marlon, who was in here playing around with the system the other day and changed the name on the screen to his initials. And that's been saying MR for the last hour. And I just now noticed that my name was not actually the right one up on the screen. But uh, y'all caught it. Anyway, um, let, let's get our screen share going here again real fast. Um, we got to turn it back on. That would help be helpful. If I would turn the screen share back on. There we go. Um we are in First Peter chapter one. As I said, um, we have been working our way uh, through this uh, opening through these opening verses, which I think are very critical in establishing the tone, uh, and also kind of uh, uh, laying down the foundation of, of the points that Peter is going to be making to them. Didn't ever lose sight, just as we did with Romans uh, and, the, and the extensive study we did over there. It is always very important when you're studying a book not to lose, to, to bury the lead, as they say. Uh, always remember, if you can find it in the book, always remember what the, the overall point of the book is, and always remember the people to whom the book is written. Don't ever forget those two things. In every verse, you know, those, every verse you ask yourself, who's speaking and who is he speaking to? And, and again, third question, what is his point? I don't necessarily mean the point in each individual verse because that might vary from verse to verse. But in a well-written book, 
a well-written document. The points of each individual portion of that are going to support the overall thesis of the um, uh, 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 of of the of the document. Um, you know, did did are any of y'all out there? Is, is I know some of y'all are older than, than I am. We have a we don't have the youngest audience on YouTube. I don't think, um, but. I don't even know if they still teach this anymore in school. When y'all went through a, a grade school, maybe junior high, whenever it was introduced to you, were you ever required to write a, a five-paragraph essay? Okay, five-paragraph essay is is an, it's an essay in which you have an introductory an introductory paragraph, you have a conclusion concluding paragraph. So you have your introduction, you have your conclusion. The body of your essay has three paragraphs, your three main points, right? And you have your three main points in that for your document. So you have five paragraphs, one's an introduction, you have point one, point two, point three, you have a conclusion, that's five paragraphs. Inside, if you're doing this strictly, the way that I was taught it, inside each of those five paragraphs, you have five sentences. Each sentence, each paragraph has a topic sentence, an introductory sentence. It has a concluding sentence. And then in each of those five paragraphs, between the introduction and concluding sentence, there are three sentences that give potentially three points supporting that underlying point. So point one has three subpoints. And that's what you have. You have a five paragraph essay that ends up being 25 sentences long, okay? It's, it's teaching you to, to, to create a, a structured, organized document. Every sentence of that five-paragraph essay has to support the overall theme of the document. You don't get to go off on a tangent with like, like I, what I'm doing right now in terms of First Peter. You don't get to do that, all right? What they're trying to do when they teach you the five-paragraph essay is not to say that every time you write an essay, it needs to be 25 sentences long. No. What they're trying to do is to teach you to write in a structured and organized manner that stays focused, trying to, you know, onto the theme, trying to help you create the the habits, the discipline of crafting a well-written document. When you have a well-written document like that, Every part of that document supports the overall theme. Well, guess what? Guess what the best written document in all of human history is? The Bible. Right? There are not extraneous thoughts. As I said in the first hour, I don't believe in coincidences in my Bible. And I don't believe there are orphaned verses in my Bible. Every verse has another verse which comments on it somewhere. All right, there, there, there are no just random thoughts from God, you know, just, just splurted out and put into the Bible somewhere. Is splurted a word? I just made that up. It's a well-written document. It just, it, it, and so when you are studying it, it will bear up to the kind of thinking, okay, kind of thinking that, that often people do not want to apply to the Bible. They, they want to feel their way through the Bible. And there is a lot of a lot of the Bible that does appeal to the heart, but the Bible is a, an ex- exceptionally well-written document. 
all right? So when you ask, I say all that to say this. When you are asking questions about the text, those are legitimate questions. And those questions, who's talking? Who's he talking to? To whom is he speaking? And then thirdly, what is his overall point? Okay, I say that just by way of introductory again, introduction here to, to 1 Peter once again. Do not forget through this entire book. He's apostle. He's an apostle that has been given the gospel to the circumcision. That's what Galatians 2 says about him. He's an apostle that has been has been charged with taking the gospel to the circumcision. He's an apostle who's writing to those of the dispersion, and he is writing to them in a time of tribulation, trying to convince them that they stand in, in the true grace of God. All of that is true about 1 Peter. And it is true about 1 Peter in every single verse of First Peter. On some level, every sentence of this book is trying to craft for the for his audience an understanding that the the um, uh, uh, the the message that he is delivering them is the true grace of God, and they should stand in it. And so we talked about. Uh, the, the significance of the foreknowledge of God, sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and all of those evidences showing that the message that Peter brought to them was indeed the true message that God wanted them to have. We talked about that at some length on Wednesday, all right? And down here, that continues. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, all right? It is again a living hope um, um, that that is connected to the, the, the preaching of this message. There is an inheritance that is guarded for you through 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 faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's about where we left off um, uh, this last time. Now, I am going to hold to the position that. This concept, the great mercy that he has given, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. If y'all were with me through the study of Romans and the topic of adoption that we studied in Romans 8 and 9, I took the position and still do that the concept of being born again in John chapter 3, except a man be born again, he cannot, uh, well, one, one verse, I think verse 3 says, can't, uh, well, well, verse 3 and verse 5. One says cannot enter, and another one says cannot see the kingdom of God. I believe that's talking there about the baptism of John. Um, I think it was probably Travis and I talked later about that. I don't, I don't remember if I ever mentioned it or not. I don't know that the concept of being born again ceases once you get in, in, into the gospel. Okay, and that, That's not my point. My point is that concept begins with the baptism of John, okay? And so it has behind it a Jewish identity. And the beginning of being born again announced the coming of the kingdom. It was the dividing line between traditional Judaism, which found salvation, forgiveness of sins, under the Mosaical offerings. But there was another system in place for the remission of sins given to the Jews. 
It's the only time, as I think I said this in the time that we're studying it, the time of the baptism of John is the only time I know of in all of biblical history where you could be saved, you could have your sins forgiven in, in more than one manner. The only, only, only time I know of it, okay? You know, uh, uh, if, if you wanted to be saved in, in Noah's day, you couldn't build a second ark. You just couldn't, right? If you wanted to be saved out of the city of Jericho, you couldn't put a, a, a scarlet thread in your window. No, it had to be in Rahab's. Uh, 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 you couldn't, if you were in a, the, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, you, you got to have the blood over the, over the door. You can't do that a second way. And so on down the line. God always has a place of salvation, and he always has one, except here. During the earthly ministry of John, you could go to the temple and offer your sacrifices. That Those were still valid. During the earthly ministry of John, you could also be baptized for John and have your sins forgiven, according to Mark chapter 1. Only time I know of, there was more than one path. Right Now, the concept of being born of water in the Spirit, does that continue into the gospel? Sure. How, how is it that you are added to the church today? You're born of water in the Spirit. That's exactly how it happens. But it began as a Jewish concept. I say that to say this. Who's his audience? And who is he talking to? He's talking to people that are exiles of the dispersion. When did that happen? My point would be that happened in Acts 8. That's his audience. These are longer-term Christians. Now, certainly, as, as the church has spread, and, and, and maybe some other Jews who lived in these areas, maybe even some Gentiles who were there reading this book, certainly they, they, would, they would be there as this book is being read. Certainly, I'm not denying that at all, all right? But he's talking to people who had been in and around the in and around Jerusalem at the beginning of the church. Now, if they're still old enough, you know, some some older Christians might still be there, who actually were numbered among that 120 that were part of the the baptism of John. That's possible. Now, I, I doubt it, but that's possible. But this whole concept, this whole history is Jewish. I believe, and I, again, I can't prove this. This part right here is Jonathan 101, all right? This concept of being born again to a living hope, I think that's, I think that's a callback to some very early days of, 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 the, of the shared experience of elect exiles. What Peter is trying to get them to see is that all of this that is happening is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you wanted to establish for a Jew that what is happening here is a, is a part of biblical prophecy, it's part of the eternal purpose, the plan of God, and you wanted to start from the beginning, all right, when, when, when was the first point of divergence between the gospel or, or not? No, no, no. When was the first point of, of, of divergence between the faith you have now and the faith of your fathers? There was a line, there was a point in time, that proverbial cliched, whatever you want to call it, line in the sand where people had to make a choice. Am I going to stay with the heritage of my fathers 
and, our, and, 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 and say to ourselves, we have Abraham to our fathers, or am I going to turn and start walking down the path of the Messiah, this new path? What was the earliest point in Jewish history that you could make that claim? Baptism of John. Baptism of John. Go back over here, okay? Go back to Mark 1. Beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the, Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way of the Lord, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Let's keep reading. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So there it is. It is for the forgiveness of sins, but it is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's important in just a moment. Okay. Then we have a discussion of John, his work, and so on. Um, skip on down here to um, um, verse 14. After the um, baptism of Jesus and so on. Jesus, or baptism, yeah, baptism of Jesus uh, as, as, as um, 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 Mark puts it together. We're dealing here with the um, uh, the arrest of John. That's already happened now. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, right? That's where we started back up here at the beginning of the book with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel is being proclaimed, okay? Um, sorry, I got distracted. You probably can't hear it, but the water heater just kicked on and it, it, we have an electric water heater and the burner just turned on. I'm hearing this noise over my shoulder. I'm like, what on this sound like something is coming over there to get me or something. But anyway, that, that's what, that's what that distraction was as I had had some noise in the background there that was, was um, um, catching my attention. So anyway, Jesus, Jesus, John's arrested. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God saying the time is fulfilled. Okay. Well, what time? what time would be fulfilled? There's going to be some kind of prophetic time. Maybe those, some of those passages that we were just looking at in, Dan, in the first hour of the program, Daniel 9, Zechariah 13, maybe that time. Okay, the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, that's what those prophecies are about, the coming of the kingdom, the anointing of the Messiah, and so on. And then notice this, repent and believe the gospel. Sometimes we read through that too quickly because when we read it, Obviously, we are reading it from a 21st century perspective. Christianity is in place. We are already responding to the call of the gospel, all of those things, right? So we read it, and I think in our minds, we reshuffle the order. Because what we have to do is we have to believe. That's our first step in coming to Christ, and then we repent. Not these individuals. These individuals needed to repent of their sins, just as Daniel was doing in Daniel 9. There, there is sin in the nation of Israel. It needs to be confessed on an individual level. It needs to be confessed and repented of. And subsequent to that, what do you need to do? You need to believe the gospel. Well, the gospel is not here, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. How do I know that? It is not until seven chapters later, as you get into the middle of, um, I think it's, is it 830-something? Uh, 831, there it is. It is not until the middle of chapter 8 of the book of Mark that this is said. And he, 
after after Mark's account of the um, uh, great confession of Peter. It's in Matthew 16. It's also here in Mark 8. Okay, you were the Christ. He strictly charged them to tell nobody about it. That's what Peter says. Okay. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priest, and be killed, and after three days be, be risen again. He began to teach them that. Okay, he's not teaching that back in Mark chapter 1, where he's preaching the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the Christ. He's not teaching them that back in Mark 1. It, even at, as late as Mark 8, he's telling people, don't tell people who I am. It's not time yet. If you start telling people then, this we're going to speed up the timeline here, we don't need that. He here begins to tell them, to reveal to them, here's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise again on the third day. He said this plainly. He's never said this plainly before. How do I know? Look at the response. If this has been something that Jesus had been telling them for three years, they would be used to it by now. They may not like it, but they would be used to it. But he, verse 31, begins to teach them this, and he begins to teach them that teach them this plainly. Peter took him aside, takes him aside, and begins to rebuke him. He rebuked Peter and said, "Get behind me, Satan! For you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." Peter is shocked by this revelation, shocked into action to the point that he pulls the Son of God aside, the man who he has just said, "You are the Christ." He pulls him aside and says, now, wait a minute. No, 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 no. This, this what you just said here, that, that's foolish talk. That can't happen. That, that's not going to happen. Why well, won't let that happen? And Jesus calls him Satan for it. Get behind me. You listen to me, not the other way around. This is the first time they've heard this. Why do I say that? Why is that important? Because... Here at the end of verse 14 of chapter 1, he tells them to believe the gospel. And he hasn't said one word about the death, his own death, burial, and resurrection. He hasn't even identified himself as the Christ openly and publicly. What gospel are they believing? What is the good news that they are supposed to believe as Jews? The good news that they are supposed to believe is that the kingdom is here, or it's at hand. That's the good news for the Jews. Now, how do you signify that you believe the kingdom is at hand? How do you signify that you are one who is repenting and believing the gospel? I've got an idea. Why don't we just go back up here in this text? And where John says to them, I am proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. They came to him, they confessed their sins, and they were baptized. All right? The first point in time, when a Jew signified that he believed the gospel of God, that the kingdom was real, that it was here, or at hand at least, the first
first point in time that a Jew could make that confession, that could signify that choice, was his being born again in the time of John. Now understand once one more time. John 3 defines being born again as being born of water and the Spirit. Are we still born of water and the Spirit today? Absolutely we are. That's exactly the same process. Different baptism, but it's exactly the same process. This is Jonathan 101. Can't prove this, but I'm the one that has the microphone now turned on. Makes it a lot better because earlier I wasn't. Now, now the microphone's turned on. And since I'm the one with the microphone turned on, I'm turned on, I'm going to tell you what I think. I think what Peter is doing here is a trying again, don't forget his point, to establish that the gospel is true, that it's the fulfillment of prophecy, that it's the right choice for you elect exiles of the dispersion, and I think he's going to his, back to as early as he can. Not that these individuals that he's writing to were baptized with the baptism of John. Likely they were baptized with the baptism of Jesus. But by using that terminology, he is hearkening back to the first moment in time that that choice was made. That indeed, it is according to his great mercy and according to his foreknowledge that this was done. And that choice provided a living hope. And so as we move forward in time, the, 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 the first generation of Jews to make that choice were born again. Followed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which that would have been seen. And then we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Standing in contrast, perhaps to the nation around it, to the inheritance of the people, as you see the Roman army circling, circling in, you're going to see a stark contrast between the inheritance that Jews had in the past. What, what, what inheritance did they have in the past? Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land. That's their inheritance. And as city after city, village after village, farm after farm gets just raised to the ground, and then ultimately the temple itself is going to be just utterly destroyed, you're going to see the perishable inheritance of that which was chosen by those who chose not to be born again. I believe we're building a case here, drawing a stark contrast between them them, those, those elect exiles of the dispersion, and their countrymen who chose another path. It's kept in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay? There is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The easy, easy reading of this would be simply to say that salvation, those who are the go, go, going to, to heaven and those who are not, that the, the dividing of, of the goat from the sheep, if you will, 
is going to be revealed at the at the final judgment. Going to be at least publicly announced. And on some level, that's true. Obviously, that, that when you when we get when we get to to that final day, that's exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be a division between those who are you know uh, 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 called up to meet him in the Lord into the air, and so ever be with, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, and those who are not. That that's true. Okay, I don't I don't think that's what this is talking about. Okay, now once again, this is one of those times. If you're going to bring this text forward and just read it for yourself, and then that's what you do with it, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you, because is that a truth statement? Yes, that is a truth statement. Does it do any damage to the doctrine of the Bible? No, of course not. Does it does it do any particular harm to to the text of First Peter? No, not really. Particularly not in terms of application. Certainly not. Okay. But I ask you again, who's talking? And to whom is he talking? And what is his purpose? His purpose, chapter 5, verse number 11. His purpose is to help them understand that I have declared the true grace of God and your job is to stand firm in it. That's his purpose. He wants them to understand that you have made or they have made the right choice. The right choice they have made is by following his great mercy, believing the claim of the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah, declared by the resurrection, Romans chapter 1 would say. All of that is the true inheritance it's not subject to being taken from, from in, in any kind of trial or tribulation. It's yours. It's kept not on earth, but it's kept in heaven. God's power is working and guard, guarding your faith, guarding the inheritance of your faith. And you hold on to that through faith, and there is a salvation. And I love this word, not just that it will be revealed, but that salvation is ready to be revealed. Okay? It is coming. It is ready to be revealed. It's the same kind of language you'll find over in the in, in first round of switching the King James here to save me a, a little bit of work on tabbing things over. First, or first Timothy uh, chapter two, verse number five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. And then this phrase, to be testified of in due time who gave himself a ransom for all. Okay, we just readily accept that, right? And, and remember, uh, 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 Paul's writing 1 Timothy uh, probably fairly close in time to the writing of 1 Peter. Um, where, where do you date, you know, where, where are you going to put 1 Timothy, Timothy's in Ephesus? Um, I don't know, sometime around the first captivity of Paul, maybe somewhere in that range, 62, 64, something like that. Maybe as late as 66. I think, I think I've seen some people date 1 Timothy as late as about 66, 67. I think that's pushing it if you ask me. I'd like more space between 1 and 2 Timothy. But um, somewhere in the, in the early to mid-60s AD, which is right about the same time that you're going to have the writing of 1 Peter. What does this phrase mean? When is the testimony coming? When, when is the due time for the testimony that Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. 
How is that not Pentecost? I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That's where we would normally point it to. No. In AD 60-something, Paul says to Timothy, the testimony that Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom for all is still coming. It's not here yet. It's going to be testified of in due time. See, the, 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 the emphasis here is not that he gave himself a ransom. The emphasis here is that he, what did I just do? Um, that he gave himself a ransom for all, Jew and Gentile, for all people. That's the portion of the testimony that's still to come. It's ready to be revealed. And now in this you rejoice. You know that the revelation of this salvation is coming. You know that it is. By the way, we don't have time, or at least I'm not going to take the time right now, but just throw Romans 8 right on the top of this because it's exactly the same discussion in Romans 8. Ready to be revealed in the last time. So in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Well, I'm going to say that little while of 1 Peter 1, well, it's the same little while of 1 Peter 5. What's that verse um, 10, after you've suffered a little while? I'm going to say that's the same time frame. I'm also going to say that that same time frame is the time frame of the due time in 1 Timothy chapter 2, because I don't believe the Bible is just randomly talking about things. I don't believe in coincidences. Two, two books written roughly within you know, a couple of years of each other have the same thought. It is the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God of 1 Peter 4. It is the behold, the end of all things is, is, is there in um, uh, uh, 1 Peter 4 as well. It is this last time that John speaks of. 1 John chapter 2, it is the last time, it is the last hour. Again, Bible's not trying to trick you. It's trying to explain itself to you. And all of these Bible writers, and I know most people would date 1 John later than I would, but I'm going to put 1 John right here contemporaneous with 1 Peter, 1 Timothy. Okay, uh, Again, that goes back to the seeding of the vision of the prophet back in the first hour. I don't have time to get in, in, the, in the biblical prophecy to get 1 John down to 80, 90. Can't do it. So I'm going to put 1 John somewhere in this roughly same time frame. Last hour, last time, last day, ready to be revealed, little while over and over and over and over again, it's in your Bible continually, which is, by the way, and one of the reasons I don't think you ought to chase realized eschatologists and these people who just do go nuts with 70, I really don't think you ought to chase them around the New Testament dealing with time statements, because unless you know your stuff backwards and forwards, they're about to eat you eat your lunch. They This is all they study. They, they know this stuff backwards and inside and out. Uh, that, that's not how you attack that doctrine. It's just as false as the day is long. That's not how you attack it. You attack it by dealing with death, spiritual or physical death. That's the, that's that is their uh, the philosophical doctrinal uh, uh, waterloo. They can't get around it if you know how to handle it. Okay, but time statements don't don't mess with them on time statements. They're better at it than we are. They're much more consistent because the Bible is so completely consistent on these time statements. It's not talking about seven, seven different things. It's talking about one thing. Okay? And it is that salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Now, did, 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 did these individuals have salvation already? Of course they did. Of course they did. He just says that he has caused us to be born again. That happened in the past. They have already been born again. They're Christians. They're saved. He is going to say that later uh, uh, in this book. You have verse 22. You have purified your souls in by your obedience to the truth. Okay? Being born again, not of corruptible seed or of perishable seed, but of imperishable by or through the living and abiding word of God. So did these individuals already have salvation? Of course they did. That's another problem with the doctrine of realized eschatology because they don't believe the, the actual spiritual resurrection of these people occurs until AD 70. Okay, that's just nonsense. These people have been born again. They have been made alive in Christ. That's a spiritual resurrection, if you want to call it that. They are born again. That, that baby's being born again. That, that, that's, how they, that's how you come alive. Okay, that's the process. All right. So they already have it. They already have salvation. There's no doubt about that. They have it. So what's this mean? It's ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, it's ready to be testified of. It's ready to be proclaimed. How? How is it going to be proclaimed? Well, we referenced it in the first hour. The way that it's going to be proclaimed is we go to Hebrews chapter 8. Now, Hebrews 8, I'm going to put a couple of years later than 1 Peter. I like Hebrews, I like Hebrews, book of Hebrews 68-ish at the earliest. I, I, some people try to date it a little earlier than that. I like it, I like it really late. I, I, I think it's the last, the last plea of God from whoever the Hebrews writer is, the last plea to God to, to the people of the most high, to, as Daniel, to use Daniel's language, his last appeal. Get out now. This is it. This is your last chance to live. Please come. And you're a Christian, please stay faithful. It's the last, that's the last ditch effort. But even here, the Hebrews writer says in, in the latter half of the, 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 the 60s, says, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer, speaking of Jesus. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. This book has to be written before 70. Because after AD 70, that statement cannot be true. That statement after AD 70 would have to read, since there were priests who offered sacrifices according to the law. Because after AD 70, there's no temple. There's no Aaronic priesthood. This has to be pre-70. Pre-70, the temple's still there. The priesthood is still functioning. The message of the Judaizers that we talk about so much when we're studying the writings of Paul, the message of the Judaizer is still active. You Gentiles have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. There's two competing systems, right? One that was initiated by the concept of being born again, starting with the baptism of John, carrying on into the New Testament. The other, which stayed with the sacrifices, the, the mosaical code, 
the, the rabbinical lore, the, the, the doctrine of the Pharisees, and so on. That two systems, both claiming the same thing. And if you're a Jew, you've got to pick, which way am I going? They're mutually exclusive, which way am I going? That's the point of the book of Hebrews. It's written to Christians who are Jews who are beginning to doubt that they've made the right choice. Same thing that's going on in Peter. Peter says, you need to stand firm because what you've done is the actual true grace of God. What they have done is not. The Hebrews writer says to them, you have to do exactly, you have to keep doing exactly what you've been doing. Yes, there are priests right now who offer sacrifices according to the law. Jesus is not part of that system. He can't be. Look at the end of Hebrews 8. After he talks about this new covenant that, that Jesus is, or that God was going to establish among the people, he says in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Here are your two choices, the two different covenants. You can believe the gospel or you can continue to believe the law of Moses. Those are your choices. But since God prophesied in Jeremiah 31, there's a new covenant coming. He makes the first one obsolete when the second one, when the new one comes. And then he says, and what is becoming obsolete? Now, what is it that's becoming obsolete and growing old? The first covenant. It's becoming obsolete and growing old. Is, and there's our word again, ready to vanish away. Has it vanished away yet? When the Hebrews writer is writing, I'm going to put Hebrews at A.D. 68, almost 40 years after the cross. Has it vanished? Nope. There are priests who offer, present tense, sacrifices according to the law. It hasn't vanished yet. It's still there. It's still completely functional. Other than here the apostles saying that, it, that, it's, that it's gone and pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, Obviously, they're working miracles, so there's evidence that it's gone, but is it gone? No, it's still standing right there. If you traveled to Jerusalem in AD 68, you would see smoke rising from the temple. You would see priests standing in front of the temple doing the same thing that they'd been doing for 1,500 years. The Hebrews writer's point is, nope. Mm -mm. Don't, don't fall for it. Don't believe it. It's about to end. The reason it's about to end for several, but that he mentions here, Christ came in the world. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. They have been replaced by a single offering, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. He then says in chapter 10, listen, in chapter 10, we can't go on sinning de de deliberately after we have uh, received the knowledge of the truth. There's no more sacrifice for sins. It's Jesus or nothing. You, these, two, these two points of view are mutually exclusive. Okay? And then he gets all the way in, in chapter, uh, chapter uh, um, uh, uh, the end of chapter 10. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Kind of sounds like First Peter. An inheritance reserved. Don't throw away your confidence. The reward of its coming, you have need of endurance so that if you, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
And then look at this. Once again, we have one of these little time statements for yet a little while, very, very soon. The one who's coming will come and he will not delay. And you need to stick on the side of faith, not on the side of that previous life. Very soon, he's going to come. And then he says, verse chapter 12, after he talks about that great cloud of witnesses that we have around us, he says, listen, don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau, who sold his birthright for just a single meal. Don't you turn back to the scraps of Judaism. Don't you turn back to that and, and, and think you're going to get relief there. Don't be like him, that profane man who, who valued the common things above the spiritual. Don't do that. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. By the way, don't forget that sentence when you're reading Hebrews chapter 6, for it will be impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the coming judgment of non-Jerusalem. If you fall back now, you're done. There, there's no more sacrifice. There's no more chance. You fall back now, you're done. This, this is it. This is the final chapter. This is the final page of the book. We turn one more page, and it's going to say the end. This is it. Get it right, right now. Yet a little while, get it right, right now. Do not throw away everything you lived for. And then he says this, The reason you shouldn't, for as you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that, that Moses says, I tremble with fear. Think about, think about what that would have been like. And the Hebrews writer says, no, that's not what you have. Here's what you have. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of, righteous, righteous, spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the meteor of a new covenant, sprinkled with, to the blood, which speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the place of the righteous, the place of the righteous made perfect. The, ange the angelic beings are, are, are gathered together in their, in their festival garments. That's what you've come to. See to it. See that. You do not refuse him who is speaking. You need to hear God on this matter. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. So he's looking back to the Old Testament and he said, listen, even on the day the law was initiated, thousands died because they didn't listen to the one that was speaking from Mount Sinai, from the earth. But now we have him speaking from heaven. And this is what he is saying right now in AD 68. This is what he is saying. Yet once more, I will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. Have you read Matthew 24? There shall be signs in the heavens, the, <laughs> the powers following, falling. He says, I am going to shake everything. 
everything I've ever made, every, every physical and spiritual structure I've ever, I'm going to shake it all. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. How about a temple and an altar and tablets of stone? How about all of those things? I'm going to shake it all in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Right now, as you read Hebrews, there are two competing systems. One, tied to Judaism. The second one was initiated with the concept of being born again. One is dead, decaying, and ready to vanish away. One is living, a living hope, a heavenly Jerusalem that has an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. You pick, you exiles of the, dis of the dispersion, you make sure you pick which one you believe is the true grace of God. Make sure you pick the right one. Stand firm in the true grace because in a little while, the one who is coming is going to come and he's going to shake the heavens and the earth and he's going to remove all of the things that are temporary, the things that can be destroyed so that the only thing that remains, the thing that shines clear is the heavenly Jerusalem the kingdom that cannot be shaken. The consuming fire of God is going to come and is going to burn away everything else. Kind of like Malachi chapter 4 that we looked at in the first hour. When he comes, he's going to burn the earth and not leave root nor stubble. He's coming, and he's going to burn down everything that can be burned. And when it does, what's going to shine forth is going to be all of that which has been tried, all of that which is genuine. Maybe all of that like a genuine faith that is more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire. Bible's not trying to trick you, people. Bible's trying to explain itself to you. When is this salvation that the exiles of the dispersion have chosen that was initiated by being born again? When is that salvation going to be revealed? Well, it's going to be revealed in the last time. And it's going to be revealed by God shaking the heaven and the earth to remove those things that can be removed. And when they're gone, there will be no doubt. There will be no doubt about what is the true grace of God, what is genuine, and what is decayed. There will be no doubt. So now, yes, you rejoice of this knowledge. That's Romans chapter 8. Okay, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. 
We're conflicted here, just as Paul was throughout the book of Romans. Yeah, what's coming? The, the glorious manifestation of the liberty of God, Romans chapter 8, 18 and following. That's coming. Okay, that's great, and we rejoice in it. But Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of the glory that is to be revealed. If necessary, you have been grieved by those various trials. That's where you are right now. You rejoice, just as Paul did, knowing that the victory, the glorious manifestation of the children of God is coming. It's ready to be revealed. But until you get there, you need to understand you are going to be grieved with various trials until that time of this revelation, of this declaration, the but now kind of statements of Romans, until that's accomplished. So that's where we are. Lord willing, we will pick up right here in about verse 6 or 7, uh, starting tomorrow. Let me see if i got any questions that I need to address. I saw several comments going through. Um, um, let me just look here real fast. Um, gee, 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 no, the whole process, Mimi says, the whole process requires faith for it's a completely new concept of understanding. One has to grasp before grasping uh, the mind shift. There's certainly that true there. Uh, um, Travis, it is revealing of the sons of God, the, the adoption, the confirmation that the Jews had made the right choice. And leaving the law of Moses and holding on to Moses or holding on to Christ, you said that more succinctly than I did. Uh, just talking about uh, the concept of being born again. Mimi says, "My thought of being born again goes back to when they were originally taught and led to their obedience of the gospel." Uh, I, yeah, Mimi, I would I would understand that. I would I would agree with that. Just understand their obedience of their understand their obedience to the gospel, the belief in the gospel, even preceded, and that's the point I went to, I wanted to make from Mark chapter eight. Their obedience to the gospel, their belief in the gospel, actually preceded their ability to believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ because it hadn't been revealed yet. But that's that was the message of the baptism of John is you need to believe the gospel, and that was simply that the kingdom was coming. Um, so um, um, let's see where we are. A lot more comments in there. I'm just running out of time here. Um, Mimi says, Peter again. Uh, with the prompting of the Holy Spirit took his audience's mind from the current tradition focus on Christ. That, that's that's exactly right. Don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of the um, of the um, um, of the of the legitimacy, the, the the glory of the of the calling that you've gone through. So um, that's where we are. Big big point today. Make sure you hold on to the, the the overall thought of a book. It's trying to convince a very specific audience. Exiles of the dispersion living in a particular portion of the ancient world, not to give up the, the, the commitment that they've made because they need to stand. They have they, they have taken a stand in the true grace of God, and they need to continue to stand in that true grace. So before you bring it forward to you, make sure you leave it right there where they were uh, as best as you can. So I will sign off for the day. It has been my pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for your participation in the study today. Uh, you do add so much to the, to the way that we are able to study God's word together. And I look forward to being back here with you, um, Lord willing, tomorrow morning as we continue uh, our uh, studies here on From the Deep End. It's been my pleasure. Uh, and as, as always, it is my prayer that you will go out and make your day a great one for God. See you back here tonight, everybody.